poverty is not a trait of character. It is created anew in each generation, but not by heredity, by circumstances. Today, millions of American families are caught in circumstances beyond their control. Their children will be compelled to live lives of poverty unless the cycle is broken. President Johnson's war on poverty has this one goal, to provide everyone a chance to grow and make his own way. A chance at education, a chance at training, a chance at a fruitful life. For the first time in the history of America, this can be done. Welcome to Off Baseline. I'm Nate Staley. On this episode, after our uh, summer hiatus, take a look at a couple of programs from LBJ's Great Society, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, and with specific focus on Medicaid and its history uh, with funding mental health treatment in America. There may not be a more impactful and important aspect of treating mental illness in America than through the government insurance programs of Medicare and Medicaid. There's all kinds of political muscle flex to expand and contract these programs, and as we approach another season of elections and political debates that will have implications for these programs... I wanted to take a look at, at their history and specifically how they function in the American healthcare system. So brief definitions. What is Medicare? Uh, starting there, it's a health system. It's a health insurance program uh, run by the federal government, which you qualify for once you turn 65. In some cases, people can qualify for Medicare before 65 if they have medical, if they have a medical disability, um, in some cases, a um, mental uh, health um, qualifying illness as well. It is funded through what's called the FICA tax from both employers and employees, um, each paying about 1.45% of earned income. Uh, Medicare is broken up into various tiers, uh, Part A, which essentially covers inpatient hospital care, and Part B, which covers outpatient and medical coverage. Part C, uh, Medicare Advantage Plan, is a optional private insurance plan, and Part D covers prescription drugs. Uh, there are various uh, various deductibles, premiums, and copays structured into that system, depending on income and other factors. The rates are typically cheaper than private insurance companies due to um, efficiency, advantages, and lower overhead uh, of government negotiating power. Uh, I'll plan to take a closer look at uh, Medicare and what its expansion toward universal coverage could look like in a future episode. Medicaid differs uh, from Medicare in that it focuses preeminently on the poor and those with disabilities. It's a joint program funded by both state and federal sources, 
And states have some autonomy on how to implement these programs within certain federal guidelines. As a baseline, you qualify for Medicaid if you are within a certain threshold of the federal poverty line. And this threshold varies from state to state depending on various factors. Um, But the big one is the ACA's Medicaid expansion. After mandatory Medicaid expansion was knocked down by the Supreme Court, after the law was passed, states split on partisan lines whether or not to expand Medicaid. So in an expansion state like um, Michigan, for an example, you qualify for Medicaid if you are within 138% of the federal poverty line, which is roughly 16000 for a single person, or 33000 for a family of four. If you're in a state, and these numbers might be a little bit off, this is based on uh, not the most scientific research, uh, internet research, but um, most numbers are pulled from uh, state websites specifically talking about um, Medicaid. Um, some of them are dated around the time of the ACA's passage or a couple of years later. Um, if you're in a state uh, like here in Missouri that... Um, that did not expand Medicaid, that chose not to, said, no, we don't want that earmarked federal funding uh, that we paid into. Um, You have to be uh, within 22% of the poverty line to to qualify if you're a parent, Um, or which is only like 5,000 or something for a family. Um, if you have a qualifying disability would be the other option. So that includes medical or, or, or mental health. Um, if none of those apply, you simply can't get Medicaid in Missouri, regardless of how poor you are. It's estimated that roughly 300,000 additional people would be eligible for Medicaid in the state of Missouri alone if it enacted a law to accept the ACA's uh, funding for Medicaid expansion or their their part of it, despite a fracturing of ACA law in the past couple of years, states are um, continuing to expand and look at that. Virginia is a more recent example, and um, Idaho and, and a few other states are looking at it as well. Uh, so let's step back and and uh set the historical stage for this we've uh, kind of some, got some basic definitions and a little bit of numbers out of the way before these programs were signed into law in 1965 uh, by president johnson medical care for the poor was all but non-existent lbj's political great society platform was pushed by a broader war on poverty led by activists, including Martin Luther King Jr. The healthcare um, access available for the poorest of the poor was uh, essentially before then out of charity um, of doctors and, and uh, maybe some um, religious groups, nurses, things like that. Doctor visits were considerably cheaper than largely because of the way healthcare is administered um, largely because of the technological advances, I should say, of uh, how healthcare is administered through m- the change in machinery and things like that. 
it's evolved radically over the years. Um, and uh, some doctors, uh, they would practice on a sliding scale for these populations out of a sense of duty or purpose. But largely speaking, coverage for the poor and elderly was very scarce to the extent that most in poverty expected or didn't even try to seek it out. And those in the elderly population before Medicare, um, they might have maybe used their social security payments to fund what they could for health care. Otherwise, they would also, um, if they weren't supported by um, family members that could afford it, they would also um, not have that option. And to the extent that mental health care was provided um, at the time, the phrase mental retardation was the primary terminology, as you'll hear in a clip in a sec. It was through state taxes uh, to run asylum facilities, a practice and a funding model that goes back to the 19th century, which um, which a practice which ended uh, or began its end around that time in the 1960s. The fact of the matter is that what we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. The British did it 30 years ago. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. And then those who say that this should be left to private effort. In those hospitals in New Jersey, where the doctors said they wouldn't treat anyone who paid their hospital bills through Social Security. Those hospitals and every other new hospital, the American people, all of us, contribute one half, one or two thirds for every new hospital in the national government. We pay 55% of all the research done. We help young men become doctors. We are concerned with the progress of this country. And those who say that what we are now talking about spoils our great pioneer heritage should remember that the West was settled with two great actions by the national government. One, in President Lincoln's administration, when he gave a homestead to everyone who went West, and in 1862, he set aside government property to build our land-grant colleges. The final Medicare and Medicaid bill passed both houses of Congress by an overwhelming vote. President Johnson signed the bill making it the law of the land July 30th, 1965 in Independence, Missouri, in the presence of former President Truman. Later, President Johnson helped President Truman sign up for the voluntary part of Medicare. They told me, President Truman, that if you wish to get the voluntary medical insurance, that you'll have to sign this application form. And they asked me to sign as your witness. So you're getting special treatment since cards won't go out to the other folks until the end of this month. But we wanted you to know, and we wanted the entire world to know, that we haven't forgotten despite the programs being targeted by various buckle fasten, fastening austerity policies and, and continuing to leave a gap of hundreds of thousands uninsured in non-expansion states 
Medicaid is the single largest payer of mental health services in the United States, contributing more than any other private or public source of funding. It covers roughly 25% of the U.S. population with mental illness, which accounts for about 9 million adults, 3 million with substance use disorders, while about 2 million, give or take, have both are what's called co-occurring disorders. disorders. Since the U.S. population with severe and and persistent mental illness is also among the nation's poorest and least connected and least resourced, uh, while many of them may work, few have livable wages and even fewer can afford the premiums of a private health insurance, um, let alone some of the deductibles that would have to be paid to get any significant healthcare services. With that, we're talking about people with, uh, for example, severe depression so bad that they can't physically get out of bed, hallucinations of voices constantly telling you to kill yourself, anxiety attacks, flashbacks, paranoia. Many simply cannot under the same in the same way sell their labor for the the same productivity in the same way as others with, for which the economy is structured around there's no profit margins for a private insurance company um to step in and provide the counseling medication health checkups support groups assisted living all of these resources that this population needs to survive and have a chance at a stable life So that's 9 million people, the population of Sweden. That would be SOL. In spite of the dramatic discoveries in medicine, the number of mentally retarded is increasing. Whooping cough, diphtheria, scarlet fever have all but been but eliminated. But every year, 126,000 children are born who are or who will become retarded. And parents frequently must face decisions in hospitals what uh, therapy to be adopted to preserve a child's life, knowing that that therapy may bring about mental retardation or blindness. Almost 5,000 of these children are so severely retarded they will never be able to care for their own needs. This tragic human waste, which of course affects not only the child but the family which is involved, can and must be stopped. And I think we have an obligation of a country, especially a country as rich as ours, especially a country which has so much money to spend on so many things, which may be desirable, but maybe not essential in every case, we certainly should have the resources to uh, spend to make a major effort to see if we can uh, block this, stop it, and cure it. Now, I debated a little bit um, about using that clip just because of the terminology that has um, not only gone out of modern parlance, but also um, presents itself as fairly offensive and stigmatizing uh, these days. Um, I decided to leave it in because of the context that it provides from historical uh, significance that terminology and mental health changes throughout the decades and and throughout the years, perhaps a, a relevant perspective. In the 50s, in the 60s and 70s, America began shifting its mental health model away from institutional, the institutionalized model where society cast off its largely misunderstood and, and stigmatized members into specifically designated 
uh, hospital like facilities out in the country that or out in an urban area that were often cold and unsanitary and inhumane. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act of 1963 uh, two years before Medicaid was signed into law, um, which left a lot to be desired, but uh, it signified the country's alignment with the transition toward treating mental illness in the community as opposed to in the institutions. These centers, many of which are um, nowadays 501c3 nonprofits, offer treatment programs to provide therapy or psychiatry or a nursing annual, um, health checkups or caseworkers to help them find food, housing, uh, food pantries, uh, clothing, um, resources, things like that. They're often the last line of support for people with mental illness or or substance use uh, disorders who have lost all societal connection and would otherwise have no recourse for essentially survival. These are important services being offered, and in many cases, clients go from uh, they go from hopelessness to make incredible improvements in their ability to cope with their illness and live a stable life. Almost every hour of every service offered at a facility like this is going to be paid for by Medicaid, uh, especially in rural areas too poor to otherwise fund these programs um, or where the political will isn't there as well. In order for that to happen, the services have to meet increasingly strict guidelines about documentation, about privacy, about the medical necessity of the services conducted, Now, it's not just community agencies, individual private practice therapists can, after meeting certain standards, bill Medicaid for services as well. It's a fairly popular option for individual therapists uh, to to conduct in-home counseling this way. Um, Fraudulent billing is treated as, in some cases, a career-ending, I would say probably in most cases, a career-ending or license-revoking offense. And community mental health organizations are routinely audited by states to revoke and any payment that does not meet their guidelines. Um, they, they come in once a year, if not more, and uh, review their charts and take money back if they, if they deem, it, um, deem something an inappropriate billing. So add on top of all of that, legislation being considered and passed Um, to place additional means-testing measures on an already naturally means-tested program. So in addition to being within 20, 30, 40, or 130% of the poverty line, whatever that qualifications may be, uh, there have been various proposals for uh, work requirements, um, to drug testing, to managed care model transitions that started in the 1980s um, to additional documentation and identification and to block grants, um, all these different programs. Many of these potential barriers, such as drug testing, seem to serve very little purpose outside of uh, punitive and potentially stigmatizing uh, political theater. Block grants especially shift the funding um, model from a flexible one to a rigid one where states um, they can put a cap 
on the benefits being offered. It's really basically a self-inflicted rationing, which leads to inevitable cuts in services if uh, the facilities can't come up with the rest of the funding, which they usually can't. Um, and uh, so despite rising costs in the healthcare industry, um, it, 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 it designates a, a, a set funding block that is sent out um, per year from the government. So that's, uh, um, that's the block grant model. And uh, the work requirement potentially creates what I kind of see to be a sort of a uh, catch-22, where the type of full-time work available provides wages that may, be, uh, that may put them above the qualifying threshold. So they lose Medicaid coverage but are still without access to maybe the ACA markets or what's left of it really at this point. Um, and if that job does happen to offer private health benefits, the deductibles might be a, a third of their entire year's wages in some cases. This is why we've been working very diligently through the Commerce Committee with Congressman Murphy, a clinical psychologist, to advance legislation overhauling our, our much, we need to overhaul our mental illness health system. Congressman Murphy has put a very comprehensive effort underway. He's put years into this. So Medicaid, it's, it's a program that has been riding political waves for the past few decades. State autonomy of the program and various political wind shifts has allowed a variation in outcomes from state to state hinging on partisan political lines. The irony of the whole thing is that the states that uh, are more likely to implement cuts and barriers are often the states that are um, less likely to provide other resources um, for these populations, therefore adversely affecting and impacting their citizens the most. Now, counter-arguments. Reasons given for, uh, to the public for the cuts... Uh, people ought to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. A phrase that, by the way, actually origin originates from satire. Or perhaps we are going to save the program by funding it less. Meaning save it from the same politician's other policies. Or my personal favorite, the invisible hand of the free market will create innovation and then poof. Quality care, quality health care that people can afford to use. The problem is, as I mentioned earlier, populations in poverty who qualify for uh, Medicaid, many of whom have severe mental illnesses, and many of whom also work low-wage jobs, will never be targeted by private health insurance companies because it's simply not profitable. It's a fool's errand to bet against the need for health care uh, with elderly or people with mental illness or people living in substandard economic conditions when we know that in difficult circumstances and in, in, in places where air quality is poor or when um, factories or, or certain things are built that um, may cause health problems, the, the Flint water crisis, or just the inevitability of when we get older, we our bodies start wearing down and healthcare becomes a necessity. 
that guarantees that these populations are going to have to access medical care more often. And that's not exactly a profitable model from an insurance policy perspective. Despite this reality, um, and I should say that the the size of um, the size of the group of these government programs are so much significantly larger uh, in membership than um, than the private companies that they are able to negotiate um, have a stronger negotiating power, and so that's kind of what gives it that cost advantage there. Despite this reality, the the lip service, uh, as the you heard the clip I played earlier, um, the lip service to funding mechanism ratio is, and these are official numbers here, a gazillion to one. As far as rhetoric goes these days, the importance of mental health care is almost completely bipartisan. I don't want to understate that because it hasn't always been the case. And lip service and awareness is immensely important. But if there's one thing I'd like you to take away from this um, half hour about Medicaid, mental health care, um, a service that is increasingly indispensable for the health and humanity of our society, cannot be delivered to many of the people who need it most without a program like Medicaid. It's not a perfect program. It has its flaws. And even with its ACA expansion to 138% of the federal poverty line, way up from 20 to 40% in the states that participate, there remain many in our society who will not see a doctor, will not see a therapist, will not see a psychiatrist, because they simply can't afford to. That's one of the main reasons I started a podcast. That's why I started taking it seriously, who I vote for, uh, rather than using the ballot box as a form of personal self-expression. That's why I joined a behavioral health politics committee um, at my work. As Americans, we live in a society full of wealth and full of individuals with a claim to a moral conscience. When we put those things together, I believe we get good things like Medicaid and Medicare. While we should, of course, of course, do everything we can to not move backwards on these issues, on these achievements gained from advocacy, political struggle, and compassion, uh, I think that we trade conscience for complacency. If our neighbors um, are too poor to have adequate medical and mental health care while we're not still moving forward. Thanks so much for listening to this uh, this educational primer on Medicaid. If you haven't subscribed already uh, to Off Baseline, you can do that through iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whichever um, brand they're doing. Uh, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at NateKCMO or the show at Off Baseline. Um, you can also find the show on facebook.com slash pod baseline. Uh, there's a reboot of the show's YouTube page down the pipeline. Not even there yet, but I just wanted to 
tease that and, and create more work for myself later, which is always fun. If you enjoy the show, please consider taking uh, two minutes to support it by leaving a brief review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Um, you can do that from the comfort of your phone. It's a modern miracle. You can also start a conversation. Engage one of the show's uh, tweets or Facebook posts or whatever. Um, always welcome. I'd love to hear back from you and get some feedback on the show. And um, maybe it'll be a conversation we can carry over into an episode. I think that'd be fun. Um, you can also not. There's lots of choices you can make, including choosing to do nothing. Um, for anything else, there's offbaseline.com. Uh, thanks so much for uh, listening. <laughs> it means a lot. I really appreciate it. And um, you're awesome. And until next time, be well. <laughs>